0: Let's preach, hey? Sermon time. Can you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6? Uh, and on the uh, screen behind me, you're actually going to see the LBC come up. I've been telling you that we're going, and over the last few weeks, we've been doing it. We've been going through the London Baptist Confession of Faith, and my, uh, uh, I shotgunned the sacrament section, because sacraments are so closely tied to the teaching ministry of the church. And as the preaching elder and pastor, I wanted to make some pastoral notes. I wanted to make some specific points as we go through the LBC, and last week, we got One sentence or half a sentence through the first line of chapter 29, paragraph 1 of the LBC. And so in a rare occurrence of wisdom and time awareness, I thought... Today, we'll just do it a sermon. We'll just do the, the rest of the chapter in, actual, in our sermon portion so that I don't have to squish and, 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 and uh, mutilate the truth so much as to fit them into five or ten minutes. So, you're in Romans 6. We've also got LBC chapter 29 behind us. And our question today is uh, what has been the historical Reformed Baptist understanding? of what the scriptures teach about baptism's meaning. There'll be other times uh, and other opportunities to sort of make stronger arguments, but I will say that today's sermon is not a polemic. It's not a, a, uh, here's all of the strongest arguments against our brothers and sisters who hold otherwise. Rather, it's what does the scripture say about the beautiful sacrament of baptism but I will not hold back from making some important pastoral notes or, or uh, 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 tangential uh, points that need to be made against other positions. So as we come to the LBC, we remember, you, you all have your English Reformation history memorised. I know you do, because you come here, and I say it whenever I get the opportunity, and you read your church history. Amen? Thou shalt not lie. But thou shalt read church history, that's the 11th commandment. So, so in the English Reformation, taking part sort of in sync but distinct from the, 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 the continental European, German, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli Reformation, over the channel in England, the Anglican Church had its own storms and had its own Reformation. Having sort of severed itself from the papal Roman uh, Catholic system, a uh, 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 a bit prior, not over theology so much, just because the king wanted to be able to marry a younger, prettier lady. Uh, Since having done that, The English church was rather distinct from the Roman Catholic church, although its theology stayed every bit heretical and perverse and damnable. As people were told that they could be saved by baptism, that people could could dispense God's grace to you according to how much good works you did. And so all the more necessary was there a reformation in the English church, the Anglican church, just as much in the continental Catholic Church. And so it happened that the the, the 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 thirty-nine articles was one document that came out of it, the Book of Common Prayer and others was the internal attempt for the the English Anglicans to reform and redirect the, the Anglican church as it then was under the king and with all of its bishops. However, there was other internal fracturings and divisions and distinctions that then came so that within the reformed Anglican church, you then had those who remained within the Anglican high church and tried to make changes. Then you had those who were so strict on what they believed the worship of God require that they they became more pure they became more distinct from the Anglican Church and became known as a ridicule though it's a great name the Puritans these English reformers then out of the Anglican Church purified too pure to be within and and too staunch in their convictions to try and work within the Anglican Church they became the Puritans on the outside they even then started to slightly uh, uh, distinguish their own theologies as the Reformation unfolded and more and more study of the scriptures became uh, 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 the, the norm. Some people thought rather than bishops under the king, the way the church is meant to be organized is, is by presbyteries, right? Series of elders and sessions that come together, they became known as the Presbyterians, or well, there were others who said, no, 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 the, the authority of each local church's occurrence is within each local congregation. They became the congregationalists. None of this is in my notes and we're just going to be here for three days at this rate because we're not even at the 1640s, but we're having fun. We need to get all the way to 1689 and then back to the first century at this rate, but we're, we're having fun, aren't we? Okay. Then those who who became uh, distinct, others of them were called the the independents, that they were to be independent from other uh, ruling ecclesiological bodies like uh, sessions of elders and the like. But yet there was still another. These... These were God's men. These were those who saw that even in this system, having been distinct from Rome, distinct from the Anglican Church, distinct from Presbyterianism, and therefore they were were mostly independents and Congregationalists, they still realized that it is not merely our church rule that needs to change. It is also our church sacraments which need distinguishing. Because they, they would see themselves as those who are taking the Reformation just one more step. We did justification. Thank you Luther and Cramner. We did we did away from the Anglican bishopric under the king as the head of the church. Thank you Puritans. We've we've come away from the Presbyterian model where the parliament has authority over even the churches. Thank you Independents and Congregationalists and the Baptists simply said, and there's something else to do. Because the heart cry of the reformation was not simply the reformation, but semper reformana, meaning Always continuously reforming according to the word of God. In a very important sense, the reformation is not over. The reformation will continue until Jesus comes back and perfects the church. But always and ever, we're going back to the Bible and saying, what does it teach? What of our practices do we need to carve out? Because the scripture does not teach these things. Death to anti-scriptural tradition and praise God for that helpful tradition that points us back to the Bible like confessions like the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist so here they were the the Baptists who were now distinct from the other reformers and then the the Presbyterians with the Parliament and the King they got together and they were told he, he was their task make a document that will unify the whole English church which we can enforce by law and everyone will agree with. Is it pretty easy to make Christians agree on like literally anything, right? The shape or the presence or the color of a pulpit. None of you have been in those members meetings or those elders meetings or those deacons meetings. That alone can lose 30% of a congregation if you have a, a carnal congregation like many do. So so here the English were, were tasking the Presbyterians, just make a document that everyone can agree with, that everyone will have to unify on and everyone will be happy with and will enforce it by law. And so what came out was a publishing saying, if you disagree with these things, if you are not a bap- uh, somebody who baptizes babies and adds them to the church that way, that became quite contentious, then you have to submit in writing a document telling us what you believe so we can go through it with a fine-tooth comb and be convinced that though you don't baptize babies like we think you should, like the Lord demands, yet you're not an, uh, an anti-Christ heretic. What was born from that response is the Baptist said, okay, we don't want to die. Here's our document of faith was the first Baptist confession. But then there was a Baptist who sort of wore that confession on his back. That was his flag. He was going around waving the sign. I'm a particular Baptist. I'm with these lovely gentlemen. I just don't believe in the Trinity or salvation by faith alone or the continuity between Old and New Testament. Like I think God sort of changed somewhat in there. And all of these other questions started coming, and the particular Baptists were jumping up and down going, he's not with us, ignore the flag, he stole the flag, he's not on our team. We'd we'd have him killed if we could, but we can't because we don't have that view of the church and state, but it'd be a good idea for you guys too. And the Presbyterians were over here saying, see, see what these Baptists believe, they're crazy, they have all sorts of doctrines and theologies, they're unsafe. And so the Baptists got together again, they assembled in London, they made another document called the second, more specific, (laughs) more theologically in-depth, London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was published later in 1689. In this confession, they were not out to say, and you can tell by the historical landscape, their point and their purpose was not to come out with a death to Presbyterianism or or death to Anglicanism, their point was not to come out and say, we'll fight all of yous over baptism. Their point was to come out and say, we are so, so, so similar to the rest of the Reformed Church in justification, in our view of God, in the triunity of God's being, in providence, decrees, and election, in, 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 in certain aspects of the church, in our view of the Bible, we are so similar, but we do differ on some things. So when you come and read the LBC, as we call it for short, you're not going to find this huge anti-Presbyterian argument. You're just going to find a positive profession of faith rather than a polemic. But in it, there is these important distinctions that they make saying, but here's why we're not Presbyterian. Here's why we're not independent. Here's why we don't baptize babies. So in chapter 28, they start out their section on the, the, the sacraments, what we've called the, and what they call the ordinances of the new covenant, of which there are only two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, because God is a sign-giving God. God is a sign-giving God. Back from the earliest days of his dealings with man, with Adam in the garden. He did not merely leave his communication and his relationship on the basis of words alone, but partnered with those words, symbols of those words in what we now call sacraments. So that even in the earliest day, even with Adam in the garden, God gave him a sign which would symbolize and signify and prove his obedience or failure in the tree of the garden of of knowledge of good and evil. Then it was to Noah, God gave a sign to seal his promise, which was a rainbow in the sky. Then he gave to Abraham a sign to seal to him the promises that were made in circumcision. And to Moses and those Israelites with him, he gave many signs and seals and pictures to symbolize the words and promises and commands that were made through the old sacrificial system. Of course... God is a sign-giving giving God to help us remember and recall and look at things which mark us out as his people. Chapter 28 makes the point in LBC, we did this a couple of weeks ago, that since baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ, being handed down from him, we are only obeying Jesus in these important sacraments if we do them the way he told us to do them. Since they come from Jesus, with, with descriptions and explanations and examples, we are then only walking in this important sign and sacrament and ordinance of the new covenant. We're only doing that if we are actually doing it the way he said to do it. We all know this. Everybody knows that all over our city at least, you can go somewhere that today will say they are preaching. Calling it preaching doesn't make it preaching. Okay, A week of feet uh, TED talk that might here or there reference some ethics of the Bible is not preaching. We know the churches will gather today and, and they'll, do, they'll do tithing. Victor said this, people will give do giving. They'll do, they'll do New Testament offering to the church, but in the mindset to be able to bend God's arm and get some gold back so that I can be healthy and wealthy and my children will also succeed. That's not New Testament giving, whatever you call it. Coming to the Lord's Supper, and I've known people to do this. Come, if you have a sickness, you probably have a demon. Come to the Lord's Supper and cleanse your life of demons. Come to the Lord's Supper and the elders will pray a a spiritual power onto you and you'll receive the spirit and tongues. This is not the Lord's Supper, even if you call it that. Paul, Paul literally says this to the Corinthians. He says, you're gathering, you're doing wine and bread and praying, and it's still not communion because it's wrong. You're doing it wrongly. So it's important for us, especially with baptism today, to know that just because we call it baptism, it's not the reality, unless it's done the way that Jesus tells us to do it. It's an important sign. So then chapter 29 comes in. There's my bottle. Chapter 29 comes in uh, in the LBC and says, all right, so, so we made the point. It has to be done biblically. It's an important sign. It all points to Jesus. 29 comes in specifically about baptism. And this is what is on the, on the uh, uh, screen behind me. It says that the New Testament baptism uh, is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. This is as far as we got last week, but allow me to do another recap. Because this is really the sign of the new covenant, we should expect to find clear instructions for it within the New Testament writings. That's my argument today. There's going to be five sort of main point, uh, hermeneutical points that we're making, but since these ordinances belong to the New new Covenant, we will expect then to find sufficient instructions to obey them within the New Testament, which is the, the New Covenant documents. Otherwise, Jesus cannot really expect us to obey it. Obedience to a command cannot be rendered without clear instructions. Obedience to a command cannot be rendered unless sufficient instructions are given about that command. Therefore, if we posit that the scriptures are not clear and sufficient enough on this front, if the New Testament is not clear enough to tell us everything we need to know about baptism, then what we need is some additional tradition to, res- to, to, to act as an authority so that we can obey the Bible. That just sounds to me like one of the main cries of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, which was against that mindset. To say the scripture is the authority and it is clear enough to tell us what we need to obey. So the Catholic Church and this one against also the Anglicans and some others that were not wholly coming along with the reformed, uh, uh, the Protestant Reformation. They would, they would add to scripture the things that needed to be understood to know that when you baptize your baby they become washed of sin and a new creation in Christ. Baptismal regeneration. Or any other mode or method of baptism which does not rely explicitly on New Testament texts is also, at the bottom of it, going against the grain of sola scriptura. Each covenant writings must include sufficient instructions for their covenant obedience. That's all we're saying. Right, Jesus came to the Jews and they said, here's how we tithe, here's how we sacrifice, here's how we do our holidays. Because the, 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 the Talmud, the, the mitzvah, the, 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 the writings of the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the elders, they've told us what we need to do. And Jesus says, what does the scripture say? Has God not spoken? Remove all of the, the the barnacles that have grown on the outside of the treasure chest of the of the of Moses' scriptures, crack it open and see what Moses himself said. It is on that basis that he commanded them and rebuked them and in fact exhorted their repentance because they had allowed tradition to add to what scripture says. So this is our our first understanding. Baptism, being an ordinance of the new covenant for the church, must be sufficiently commanded in the New Testament documents. This is this is a corollary. It just follows one on the other. Obedience to, a, to ordinances have to be sufficiently revealed in the text. Therefore, baptism, since it belongs to the new covenant, needs to be sufficiently commanded in the New Testament documents. If sola scriptura is in fact a valid theology then we will find in the new testament descriptions for the new testament ordinance including baptism so so this is this is i'll walk us through five points of hermeneutics hermeneutics is how do we interpret the bible why can't i go to malachi 3 where it says give lots of stores uh, a grain into the storehouse and you will be blessed why can't i just print that out put it over my bank accounts and pray it and have it come true why not because there's ways that the Bible needs to be interpreted. You can't just whack a, a verse out of its context, that poor little thing. You're just abusing that verse, whack it on a coffee cup and said, plans to prosper me, baby. That's not how you do scripture. That's not how you do theology. We do the, people do this with healing. People do this with families. People do this with all kinds of things. So here's some hermeneutical rules that we need to, need to stand by. First of all, we, we ask the question, can I use then, like, because like, I'm, I'm kind of making big of the New Testament this morning, can I use then, pastor, can I use the Old Testament for my theology? Well, The answer is a resounding yes. It is the basis and the foundation of, 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 of our theology. New Testament grows up out of it, is birthed by it, and Paul in, himself says, all scripture is inspired and is profitable. We're not Marcionists who say Old Testament God was a different God. He matured and now he's Jesus. We don't come like the Anabaptists and say the Old Covenant theology has no bearing on the New Testament whatsoever. Don't do that. We're not the liberals who come and say, oh man, it's pretty crazy. They had slavery. They didn't treat women great. The Old Testament is not inspired of God anyway. It was man's best way of understanding him. Let's just stick with the New Testament and none of that stuff that Paul says about women not preaching. They're pretty selective. But anyway, that's what the liberals do. That's not what we're doing. The Old Testament is foundational for our theology. But here's the second point. Being shadows... Come with me. Being shadows, the Old Covenant signs and sacraments are not authoritative in interpreting the New Testament. So Old Testament inspired, foundational, profitable, but... The specific commands and recipients of its signs and sacraments, because it's a shadow, it is not authoritative in describing to us who should be baptized, how we should baptize, or do other things within the church. This is what that would be like. Since the Old Testament is like the shadow, and Paul says in Colossians, Jesus is the substance. Like Jesus gives us teaching, understanding, uh, uh, commands and an and explanation of what God is doing in the world. He gives it to us and exposes salvation to us in such a way that it is like a father coming home. And a child seeing a shadow cast by his father. And he knows that in moments his dad's coming. And he knows that's the shadow. He sees the shoulders. He, he knows the size. He, he sees how it is cast. And he knows that's his father. But when the father rounds the corner, the child's eyes go directly from shadow up to the substance of his father. He runs to the father for an embrace which the shadow cannot give. This is substance and shadow. The Old Testament is shadow. Perfect in its purpose, but not meant to be the substance which Jesus Christ alone is. Therefore, if we come to the New Testament and then try and sort of evolve or or develop a theology for the sacraments, baptism today especially, and we keep going back to the old covenant to say, well, here's who got circumcised. Or, here's who partook of the Lord's Supper, uh, sorry, of Passover, therefore, here's what we should do in the church with baptism and the Lord's Supper. That would be like going to the shadow when my question to you is, what is your father's eye colour? Now, if I said, what's your father's general shape, the shadow would be fine. If I said, what does your father look like at a 45 degree angle at 5.30pm as he's coming home and the sun's behind him, The silhouette shadow is fine. It's not saying anything untrue about the Father. But it doesn't have the details to answer such questions as, what's your Father's eye colour? Let's have a look. Black. And what colour is your Father's shirt? Black too. What about his shorts? I guess black also. But the New Testament is that for the Old Covenant. So that we come to the the baptism with questions like, who should get baptised? When should they get baptised? Upon what basis and what is its meaning? And now... All-consuming and uh, uh, all-controlling hermeneutical rule is the New Testament holds its own authority on the specifics and the Old Testament does not help us in the specifics. This also means that the apostles' interpretation of the old is authoritative. The, 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 The apostles say stuff about the old covenant that we could never have known. They say stuff about the Old Testament prophecies that we could never have known, right? You read Hosea 11, out of Egypt I have called my son, God says. We know exactly what that means. That is about and is only about Israel, the nation who came up out of slavery from Egypt. We know what that means. And Matthew says, correct and wrong. It's about Jesus who, who, was a, who ran away from uh, the murderous Herod, lived there as he was an infant and then returned to Nazareth. And we go, oh, I, see I wouldn't have made that connection. But here's Matthew saying, it is what that was prophesying. So he's not just saying, this is like that. He's saying, that's what the Holy Spirit meant back in Hosea 11. And how do we know that Matthew's right on his reading? Because Matthew speaks and writes by the Holy Spirit as an apostle. So, when we come to the Old Testament, Old Testament, we go, I don't know, these verses could shed some light on baptism. These, these verses could shed some light on, on, on sacraments or, or on church leadership or, or who gets to preach or Deborah was a judge, maybe ladies can pastor. And we go, how do the New Testament apostles use and view the Old Covenant scriptures in making their arguments and commands for the church? This also means, lastly, that if the apostles, therefore don't make explicit commands or extrapolations based on those Old Testament texts. We can't either. If the apostles give explicit commands and examples about baptism that don't include other people, other ages, other portions, other other specifics, then we say scripture is sufficient, scripture is enough. New Testament apostles are authoritative, and so what we see in the New Testament by command and by practice becomes our authoritative norm. We don't baptize, there may be exceptions, right? Sick people who are bedbound, uh, 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 elderly people that, that, that are not safe to be submerged, uh, things like this. It's, it's the freezing Russian winter, and you literally can't find any non solid water because it's all ice. There will be exceptions but allow those exceptions to be exceptions. What this means is the New Testament's practice and apostolic explanation is not just the beginning of a theology about baptism, it is the sole substance of our theology about baptism. But there we are done. Let's look at Romans 6 (coughs) and we will finish with a a few recognitions of what LBC says, (coughs) what the London Baptist Confession says about what, Baptism means, what it symbolizes. It says the baptism is to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him of remission of sins and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Look at Romans 6, which I've told you to go to a few times, though I myself am not Even there. In Romans 6, Paul is really answering the question that is posed in verse 1, which is, if salvation is all by grace, not by obedience, then obedience must not matter. Have plenty of fun in sin. And Paul doesn't retort by saying, no, 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 no. Your your works do get you saved. You need to be good. Rather, he says... That's not even the question. Salvation is not just something that happens in your justification. It's not just something that changes where you're going when you die. It changes who and what you are right now. You used to be dead, now you're alive. How can you even talk like saying, let's go back to my old life and sin all the more? You're you're not just going to heaven when you die. Heaven has invaded you in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. You're a new being, a new person, with new authority, with new life and power. You won't live like you used to live. Now listen, in this context then, isn't it interesting that he uses the language of baptism? This is what he says in verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a good question. Verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore... By baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here's what the London Baptist Confession is telling us. The purpose and the meaning of baptism is it is a sign, a screaming message, primarily to the person baptised. It is not primarily a sign for the whole church. Though I will exhort you when we do baptisms, come and mass, come and watch, be attentive because in doing so, the Lord will bless your heart also. But it is still a valid and true baptism if it is done by one believer to a new believer with no other witnesses because it is primarily a sign From God through the baptism waters to the heart and soul of the person being baptized. We know this because in Acts chapter uh, 8, there is, uh, 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 sorry, Acts chapter 9, Paul is baptized without other witnesses. It wasn't primarily for the others, it was for him. We also see that the eunuch is baptized by Philip alone privately, not in a church, and not to make a public statement, but primarily baptism, while it has other benefits, is for the person baptized. So here's the side note. Of course, the person being baptized needs to be of age to recall and remember the baptism because it's a sign to them. It's a point to remember and recall and think about what that baptism symbolized and meant, you, and, and this is important because the baptized is an individual. In, in the Reformed Baptist mindset, they're saying, baptism is a sign not to the state that we've added another Christian into Christendom to serve the king, Anglicanism, not to the church primarily that we have another soul among us to watch as a member, Presbyterianism and others, maybe Lutheranism. It is not to say, here is somebody now saved, baptismal regeneration nonsense, it is primarily for the person going under the water to remember and recall this new covenant salvation that has come to them. Because the new covenant is not entered to by family. It is not entered to by ancestorship or bloodline. The new covenant is not entered into by what nation you live in contra the medieval church. The new covenant is entered into by the choice of God and by regeneration and by faith alone. Therefore, the sign for that salvation is granted to those after such a professed, after such an evident faith and regeneration has occurred in their life. Secondly, we can go on. Not only is it a sign to the person baptised, but it is a sign of very specific things. Here is the Apostle telling us what baptism is meant to be a screaming reminder of. Your baptism, which you remember, is a sign of your union and fellowship with Christ, the LBC says. In Romans 6, we see all of this language of with Christ, in Christ, baptized into Christ, putting on Christ also in, uh, in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You, you now belong to him. You, you have been engrafted into his tree. You have now been consumed up into his spiritual life. If you've been baptized, you've put on Christ by faith. Or Colossians 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So here's what baptism is. It's a sign not just of fill in the blank. It is a sign to the person baptized. I am now one with Christ. I am now in Christ and he in me, we are unified and, and I have this fellowship with it. Wherever I go, there Christ goes with me. Wherever Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God, I am there also in him and with him and I will go to him. This is for you. If, if you have been baptized and still wonder its whole significance or what did it do to you, it didn't do anything to you. It points to what God did to you by faith alone. So don't ever, here's my pastoral note, don't ever, don't ever look back on your baptism and try and see in the baptism a proof or an assurance of your salvation. It's a useless, shaky, crumbling ground of assurance. It's sinking sand. It doesn't help. And if it does help, it's bad help. If you get assurance from remembering, no, my uncle prayed for me. No, there was lots of people who watched me and I gave a great testimony and I went right under, like even my toes, like right under. I did a ponytail so that all my hair went under. I, it was full. It was real. Thank the Lord. I was baptized truly. There's my assurance. That's a bad assurance. Baptism doesn't become a sign to you by saying, look at me. Remember how powerful I am as a baptism? It preaches to you saying, remember me, listen, listen, look to Jesus who died for you, who rose again, and with whom you have union if you have faith. That's what baptism is for us. A reminder of our union and fellowship. Specifically, we're going even further, specifically into his death. So that everybody baptized should be able to say, that baptism reminds me that by faith alone... Jesus died and I died with him. And when Jesus rose, I rose with him. This is death and resurrection. We see this in Romans chapter 6 again. Look back into verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So if by faith alone your baptism reminds you that you have Jesus, that means even more that you have Jesus' death on your account. The law comes to you and tells you how sinful you are, how useless you are, how deserving of death you are, and you say, that's great, but look at the other pages of my account. You will see at the back of the account that Jesus has already died. I have a death on my account. The the, the law can't condemn me to death anymore. Everything the law demands is given by Jesus. And also in his resurrection, look at, say, verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Look at verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Look at verse 11. So you must also consider yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. These two things are true of you. If you have truly had faith in Jesus then what your baptism symbolized for you is that in going down under the water, you are dead and buried with Jesus back then in Jerusalem all those years ago. But as you came up out of the water, it symbolized to you and it preaches to you that just as Jesus rose again never to die, so also you have now in your soul an eternal and immortal life and you now live with him and by him what baptism becomes to us a sign and a symbol of that death and resurrection and also a remission of sins is what the the lbc says to us is that not only is it those things a reminder of your union but it is also a reminder and this is why water is again a good 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 substance a fitting example that we see god give to us in scripture it's a washing and a cleansing and a remission of sins Acts chapter 22, Paul's giving his testimony and he's telling his people what happened to him and how God saved him, and and how then he was sitting blinded by Jesus. Now he's in this room and he's praying and he's calling on Jesus for forgiveness. And Annas is sent to him and, and he says to him, All right, you've you've you're a sinner, Jesus appeared to you, you wanted to kill all the Christians, now you are one, you're blind. I'm gonna pray for you and your healing. The Lord told me you're not going to use your newborn sight to end my life, so I'm going to pray for your healing. He does so. And Paul says, Then he said to me, Now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The act of getting down into water in the middle of a church service does nothing to your spiritual condition. It doesn't affect your sins whatsoever but when that act is done by faith in christ the holy spirit so uses it to become for you a call to god we can say this god loves ceremony i know in our day we sort of we throw away all the god hates the externals no matter what you do or wear or how you sit or how you look or any of this god doesn't care about externals you can have church in a gutter as much as in a cathedral Amen, hallelujah. But God does love ceremony. The thing is that his ceremonies are just so minimalistic. You just need a person and water. You just need wine and some bread, gluten-free or otherwise. That's all you need. So very minimalistic, but God loves ceremony. God loves putting us through these processes to imprint on our minds what we hear and read in the Word. What God despises is ceremony without valid faith. So so ceremony is like a body. Faith is like a soul. Without faith, God looks on our ceremonies as dead and empty and of no profit whatsoever. You, You lift your hands, sing loudly, read some scripture, sit in church, get baptized, take the Lord's Supper, go on home without genuine saving faith. Those things count for nothing. However, when the ceremony is done with faith, they become not only God blessing us, but also us calling on God in them and through them with assurance. This is what Paul meant when he was told by the Christian baptize, uh, 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 commanding him, go and be baptized, washing away your sin by calling on his name. Without The pre-existent faith in Jesus that calls on his name, calls on his blood, calls on his death, calls on his resurrection to be yours by faith. Without that, the washing is not washing your sins. I'm I'm doubtful it's even clean water that we use. So you're not even coming up physically more clean. Maybe some mascara is running. Maybe some dirt is now off of your face or from underneath your nails. But your soul remains dirty unless there is faith binding. this, so, so what we're saying is that baptism is, in a, in a conditioned sense, baptism is the washing away of your sins, because in baptism, you're calling on God to save you and forgive you on the basis of Christ alone. And so people should be baptized with faith. If what Romans 6 shows to us and and what the LBC tells us and and though debate and argument about when people should be baptized and how we should baptize can be left to another time, first what we need to do is behold our God and the wonderful measures that he puts before us in baptism and of course the Lord's Supper as well. Praise God that he has given us not just a book, but then he commands that book to be preached and explained He commands that book to be sung back with all of its truth to him in worshipful song. He commands us to pray its truth and call on him for help. And he also gives us physical, visible ceremony to undergo to continually bless and seal the gospel into our heart by our experience. So, so, so today, the apostolic command is, if you have not been baptized since you have been born again, then be baptized and, and call on the name of the Lord for this remission of sins and, and celebrate in, in, in this remembrance the union you have with Christ in his death, resurrection, and new, immortal, eternal life. But, but the even more urgent apostolic command, which still rings through the ages and echoes today is, If you have not placed your personal faith in the Lord Jesus. Regardless of how Christian your family or nation or experience may be. As impressive as maybe even a baptism was that you did in front of a grand glorious church. That all affirmed that if you have not believed unto Jesus. Then you have not called on his name or received his death in your place. His life into your soul or the newness of life now to be lived. In other words... You're not in Christ. You're not engrafted into Christ or any of his benefits. You are still in Adam and all of his cursings. You're still dead to God, alive in sin and going to hell. You're still condemned by the law and caught and captured under its commands and punishments. You have no hope at all. Give up and give yourself unto Jesus Christ by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this glorious truth that in the gospel, the filthy are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That the the rebels are engrafted into your family through your son, Jesus. That the the unrighteous are engrafted into a righteousness through your obedient one, Jesus. That that the dead are given new life by being unified to your son, our God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We thank you. That you've been so willing in your grace and in your mercy, yet also in your justice and your glory to give to Jesus the record and the accounting of all of our sin so that anybody can believe on Jesus and find that their sins are completely forgiven and already paid for. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the wonder of the gospel, for the power of the cross, for the glory and marvel of you put on display in Jesus Christ. We pray now that the, the New Testament and the, the, the whole word of God would conform our minds, would conform us as a church to be obedient unto your commands. We, we thank you for the unity for the joy, for the love of the gospel that we have here as a church and ask that you would make it to continue to explode out of these doors, erupt out of our hearts and flow on from our mouths to see people find the one and only saviour, the hope for sinners, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.